So but can these are... all look like Pantone one gray and Pantone <laughs> two grayer? <laughs> but they, <laughs> it's all ten YR, isn't it? That's, uh... <laughs> yeah. Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, joining you this time from southern New England, and being joined by, as always, Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Oh, not too bad. Coming to you live from uh, Studio 589. Fantastic. And those and those of you that can't can't see this, Studio 589 is Ken's fashionably appointed uh, rooms in Lethbridge. And the other thing you can't see is that Ken's eyes are heavy, heavy with the weight of somebody who got a job before their dissertation was finished and now really needs to finish that dissertation. And so the fatigue, he's um you can't see this, but he's actually vaping. And I've never seen a man vape out of what appears to be a water pipe the size. Oh, it's his microphone. I see what it is. I see. I don't know. I don't know where the smoke is from. But uh so 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 Ken is doing well, as as you just heard. And he's doing so well that he asked if he could give this week's prize read. We're gonna be talking about the late maritime archaic, and he has an appropriate uh we have an appropriate prize for you. If you are the person that come up with the new name for the podcast here, the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And and so where would they where would a listener write in if they had a new uh name, Ken? They're gonna be writing into New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com, uh, the rarest available Gmail address. Uh, and uh unfortunately this week we don't have listener mail to read. Um uh, but we have had a few suggestions. Uh we've even had a couple suggestions on Facebook that we we broaden the scope of the title of the of the podcast uh, oh interesting um beyond oh, just archaeology oh beyond archaeology not beyond New yeah. Brunswick yeah no I mean I think maybe also beyond New Brunswick but that uh, that we cover a broad range of topics that extend uh beyond just the archaeology of New Brunswick uh, that we oh, talk about history more generally which is See, I was uh, going to do that thing that um that there's really no one more annoying than an American who's immigrated to Canada about this stuff because they they immediately immigrate and they become it's the zealousness of the of the convert right and they they immediately become complete cultural nationalists and so I was at an ESAF meeting once and I won't name the fellow but he's an immigrant he'd probably never admit this to you it's from you know some it's not a state as bad as Ohio but like a similar state to Ohio down in the United States <laughs> and I I had a poppy in my jacket and he ran up to me and he said oh another Canadian and I said no I'm you you know full well I'm an immigrant and I know full well you are too. <laughs> you're both wearing your summit series jerseys yeah exactly the uh yeah, yeah the maple leaf tattoo a temporary tattoo gave, really gave it away yeah um but okay so we've we've had suggestions that we'd extend it to include history yeah yeah that we're oh. that we are uh that we're covering a broad scope and and that we should uh acknowledge that so oh, so well, that's, that's, that's uh generous. that's definitely in the uh it's in the fishbowl of suggestions fantastic but so if we were to reach into the fishbowl and find our winner to find something that just really had to be the new name of this podcast. And that was this week. What exciting prize would that person win, Ken? 
Well, one of the themes that we're going to be talking about this week is long distance exchange. And uh, we thought that it, uh, it would be appropriate to send the listener uh, a mundane item from a great distance. And uh, uh, you, you may be surprised by how mundane that item is and how, how much that item, having gone such a long distance, ends up having such an importance to you. Um, and along with that item that may arrive by your favorite courier, um, Canada Post, uh, and if it's Canada Post, it may never get there. Um, but along with that, we're, we're also going to arrange to have Skip the Dishes delivered to you um, uh, a sizable, maybe two-person meal size uh, uh, steak of swordfish, um, frozen, of course, so that you can cook it however you'd like. Um, but uh, but uh, you'll have a, a, a lovely meal and a long-distance item, and, uh, and you can really maybe uh, uh, grill your swordfish and sit down and, and listen to this podcast and, and just think about uh, the cynicisms going on between your meal and your, and your audio experience. So the listener may have just thought they heard an aspirated yes from my side, but it's the fact that I'm, I'm just drooling from the excitement of this grilled swordfish steak, which sounds incredibly delicious. Ken, Ken how do you prepare swordfish usually when, uh, when, when you make it? I'll admit I, I've never cooked swordfish myself. I've eaten oh, it, but uh, um, I would imagine that'd be one you'd want to sear, like get really hot, a little bit of oil, salt and pepper, and just sear it. And you'd probably just do salt and pepper. I don't think you'd need much more than that. That's that's exactly how I've done it. And uh, but speaking and of I aspirated... eat it with um, with rostra uh, uh, chopsticks. <laughs> rostra, oddly no above. <laughs> and uh so but speaking of aspirated yeses and and uh we, our sponsor every one of those aspirated yeses is sponsored by the association of professional archaeologists of new brunswick and uh ordinarily i would direct you to apanb.ca but uh, as a member of the board i'm told that we may actually not have paid our fee to our internet provider this uh this month i assume it's monthly not fortnightly like this podcast but we are in the process of settling up, and we will soon have apanb.ca back online, and we encourage you to check it out. Yeah, GoDaddy has uh, uh, has demanded cash. This is a family podcast, Ken. I have to remind you again. <laughs> Our other exciting news, though, in in a, a land that is adjacent, perhaps to sponsorships is that we have our very first uh, swag has arrived. And these, uh, the listener who who knows Ken as well as I know Ken, well, there, there are no listeners listening who know Ken, except maybe his parents who know Ken as well as I know Ken, will think that we probably got lapel pins. But um, it's tax season and we haven't gotten our returns yet and lapel pins are expensive. So instead <laughs> what we did was uh, we have just received, Ken has just received an order of 200 stickers. Those of you who are following on our Instagram will know exactly what these stickers look like. They're a fetching representation of our logo. They're suitable for putting on whatever high-end insulated travel mug you use. If you're a, a Hydroflask user, a Yeti user, a Stanley mug user, whatever it is you use to get yourself to work uh, in the morning or to get yourself to bed in the evening, that is the mug that will hold uh, this sticker. And and uh, we're pretty pleased with them. And I think so that the way to do this, the way to get one, I believe, is it's actually sort of an encounter method that uh, if you see Ken at the SAAs, you can request one. If you're one of the first 150 people, Ken, is that right? I think that's the idea. Yep. 
Yeah. And then um, I'm going to at some point have a stash of 50 or so of these, um, which if there's enough uptake, we will we will replenish. Um, there's probably other ways to get these. Um, knowing us probably helps, you know, if you're the sort of person who's got <laughs> political capital, if you're the sort of person we owe money. If you're the Um, sort of person that we think would scan the QR code and listen to our podcast. That would be a a great candidate for this. Um, And and for the listener and for the lucky recipients of these, uh, this uh, first edition swag, uh, that's the other thing is that this will be the first edition. We'll try to find some way to um, uh, make it known so that in the second edition, um, you can point out that, well, I had I had the first wave of these. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm an early adopter. Uh, once we're once our names are in the stars, uh, the listener. What are we gonna do? We're gonna like obliterate York County. We'll just like there will be no York County. It'll just it won't, <laughs> won't be visible. On the- well, it's it's funny you bring up counties. So on this new the new logo on the revised logo, we've we've centered in on New Brunswick and we've colorized each of the counties, uh, each of the many counties of New Brunswick and. And in doing so, what the what the viewer and listener will find on these these lovely uh, stickers is that we have used New Brunswick's official colors, um, and these are uh, featuring uh, a Pantone one sixteen yellow, Pantone one eighty six red, and Pantone two eighty six blue. Um, uh, uh, official colors from the uh, New Brunswick government website. Uh, so can we these are... all look like Pantone one gray and Pantone two <laughs> grayer, but they, yeah. it's all 10 YR, isn't it? That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, get over to the glaze page and you're good. So, th- so, um, we're very excited about that. We'd also like to thank, um, a number of people. So people haven't been writing into our email address as much, but that's okay. But we'd like a um, to give a shout out to folks who have left reviews on our podcast. We've gotten a number of five-star reviews, which we really appreciate. So thank you very much. Um, and, and we certainly enjoy the reviews and comments that you leave for us um, there uh, on whatever server you use. And we'd also like a special th- shout out to the folks in the archaeology lab at St. Mary's University and the folks doing cultural resource management archaeology in Vermont. Uh, both of whom have written in, and we appreciate your comments. So thank you very much. Yep. And so take this as a warning, dear listener, that if you don't want horribly revealing information that's going to make it almost incredibly easy to identify you, even without us saying your name, you should mention this, and we'll we'll turn on this. We'll we'll say you know you're calling in from North Dakota or or whatever. We could do that thing that I used to listen um, late at night. Ken, I think I've mentioned the, this to you. This this really terrible talk radio show called um coast to coast am and the great thing it was it was all essentially conspiracy theories or ghosts and this kind of thing and the the great thing was that the calls weren't screened so people would call in and it went right to the host and um it it it, it he would always have uh, the only options were west of the rockies you're on the air or <laughs> east of the rockies you're on the air or wild card line <laughs> <laughs> and you know or get faxes we should get a fax machine probably i think there's still one in annex uh, annex c isn't there or in the uh, uh, incutech lab no no uh, we've we've gone all no fax oh yeah the moho wire has been canceled oh um 
But I guess, Ken, the real reason that people have tuned in is because they know that we are committed to keeping these shows to a lean 45 minutes. <laughs> and now that cool we've... Uh, 45. <laughs> exactly. And uh, now that we've uh, ragged the puck, are you listening to that phrase, immigration officer? Um, we <laughs> we, uh, we should get going on our conversation day, which is the late Maritime Archaic, which is about 5,500 years ago to 3,500 years ago. Um, and as always, those are calibrated years those are real calendar years and um this is it's a conversation we're sort of excited to have because if you're involved in northeast archaeology this is one of the kind of iconic periods and it's one of the really interesting periods although all the periods are really interesting but it's one of the ones that i think occupies the public imagination in a much bigger way and also one of the ones that's been somewhat controversial in not just professional conversation, although certainly there, but also in public understanding um, of the region. But so to set the stage for this, though, we want to do some some housekeeping that's basically um, some anthropological background that's going to make the rest of our conversation make more sense. And so um, we want to talk about this thing that anthropologists use, this term that anthropologists use, and that is complexity. And so, uh, Ken, what is complexity? So when I'm teaching this, I have kind of a list. Uh, and there's sort of a ticky box when it comes to the anthropological definition of complexity. So there's um, groups that will rely on surplus production. So they make more food than they can consume sort of in one setting. So they maybe store food. There's a dependence on storage. Um, you see specialization. So whether that's in like, you know, making very elaborate tools or particular types of crafts. Um, so craft production or cra uh, tool production. So there's groups within, there's members of the society that are, are, are sort of tasked with making nice things. Um, you start to see status differentiation. So that means they're members of society that actually have um, a different social ranking maybe than others. And we tell this uh, in anthropology and in archeology, span we can, we sort of make these determinations usually based on grave goods um, and the way people are buried um, sort of uh, that uh, the the way people are treated in cemeteries is usually a reflection of how they were viewed by society during their life in some ways, right? And so um, uh, burials with more elaborate grave goods, for example. Uh, so if somebody's buried with, um, you know, stone from a great distance, um, then uh, uh, that may give you an indication that this person maybe had a, a role that was a little bit more um, step separate from everybody else in society. So there may be social inequality or hierarchy. Um, you get this widespread uh, or exchange of, of uh, uh, exotic goods or wealth goods. So things from a great distance, usually fairly elaborate tools, um, uh, like the like the listener will experience. Okay, so uh, does it come with a frozen swordfish steak, or is that uh, is well? That you know, that, well, pod? as we'll talk about, as we'll talk about this, in some cases it may have. Actually, not even probably like uh, swordfish sushi. Really, that's uh, yeah. Um, swordfish tartare. Tartare. Uh, territoriality. So this is mine. That is yours. So kind of uh, uh, establishing that uh, spaces, particular spaces in the landscape, are um, for certain groups and for certain people. Not and to trespass across that maybe um, may come with some kind of like interpersonal conflict. Um, you may see fortification, so um, some sort of defensive structure or evidence of increased conflict. Um, generally, and this is your jam, bigger houses um, uh, come with a, a complexity. Um, and most groups um, 
uh, in general, uh, probably have a larger population, that sort of thing. So you have an increasing population. Um, that's sort of like a ticky box list, but really what we're talking about are, um, you know, sort of that groups have gone beyond what we, we talked about the last few weeks, sort of this classic forager model where um, you're highly mobile, um, you are generally subsisting off of like available resources and that sort of thing. Um, you're maybe settling down a little bit, staying in one place for a longer period of time and, uh, and doing some uh, and more, more complicated things with the way you, you've organized your life. So, so sort of, we might sort of say like politically, you've got the, the stereotypical sort of imaginary Anth 1000 band, right? And that band has got basically no real political offices. It'll have like a headman who's pretty much achieved all of his status and um, his actual power in society is extremely minimal and <laughs> kind of pro forma. Yeah. And then yeah, the other can, hand, we you can, can always like, sort of walk away from, from those sorts of social and political organizations. Exactly. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you might have a group sort of like the Zulu, right? Where you've got complicated political structures that are inherited, that are overlapping. You've got checks and balances. You've got all these kinds of things, right? And so in reality, probably most societies fall, you know, in between something like Canada and the Kungsan, you know, something <laughs> sort of in between is the is the vast majority of, of groups. And we think about though hunter-gatherers as being the kind of classic, you might say simple, and this kind of quotes around that, right? Because we're just talking about their political organization, um, society. And there's been a kind of raging debate in the literature really about whether or not the term hunter-gatherer even means much of anything, right? And and part of the reason for this is that we keep finding out that hunter-gatherers keep doing all sorts of political stuff that in your sort of undergraduate class, you don't hear about, right? So um, when you when you learn about hunter-gatherers and you're an undergraduate, you you imagine the kind of this this sort of the opposite of what Ken was describing when he described complexity. You've got they're very egalitarian, uh, very little political organization, very little territoriality, very little. Uh, they're not making monuments, they're not making cemeteries, they're not staying in one place for a long time. And it turns out that there are all sorts of examples that of hunter gatherers doing things other than this. And it used to be that you'd you take this class and it would be as if there were one group that did this. And that was the Northwest Coast hunter gatherers. And and you mentioned, Ken, that that uh, Gary Copeland had a definition for was it complex hunter gatherers? Yeah. Uh, they don't live in small groups and they don't move around a lot. Right. Yeah. So they're they're basically, you know, year-round residents, big population. But that and they also make big houses, right? Gary, Gary yep. co-authored that or co-edited that book. I think it's just called People Who Live in I Big Houses. Yeah, it's called People, at uh, Gary and, and Ted Banning, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, which is sort of about complex hunter-gatherers who live in big houses, big multifamily houses. All over the world. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and who live fairly permanently in them. And, you know, who've... And, and the kind of classic example from the Northwest Coast, right, is that these people had slaves, right? How It can't get much more politically complex than that, you know? Yeah. So we've got huge amounts of status differentiation. And but then it turns out that in the archaic period, which we're still talking about, there are also other examples of this, right? So you've got this classic kind of broad spectrum revolution, but even in places where people aren't settling down, right, in this quite the same way, like in the Northwest Coast, the idea was the salmon runs were so productive 
Um, the clam beds are so productive that you just kind of settle down. Why would you not be complex? Why would you start farming? You know, yep. that would be a lot, a lot worse than this gig you've got going. Um, and so, in, and so instead, but then you get places like Poverty Point, right, where you get monuments, you get big populations, you get presumed. Sorry, that's in the the southeast United southeast. States. Yeah, um, Louisiana, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it is, and. Yeah. Um, and you get similar things along the St. John River in Florida that uh, Ken Sassman's worked on. Yeah. Um, and these and people so are, like, these are hunter-gatherers building these really complicated earthworks. Uh, really interesting, like, Sassman goes into this interesting stuff where they've done, um, I can't remember the other guy's name um, that came up with it. Basically, all of these middle and late archaic monumental structures in the southeast were following a standardized, uh, like, dimension. Uh, a, yeah. a standard the standard metric uh, basic unit or something like that or um and it's, yeah, it's like uh, somewhere running around the southeast was like the archaic period indigenous palladio right like telling you you know the perfect dimensions for your countertops and your houses and your uh, yeah but your shell heaps in particular <laughs> yeah. yeah shell heaps and then and then in earthen mounds um yeah uh, at some point so yeah um and so the reason this is all so relevant though is that um, when we're talking about the Maritime Archaic, this is really kind of New Brunswick, the far Northeast. It's their version of this problem, which is what does what does hunter-gatherer really mean if we've got all these signs of complexity? And so as we mentioned at the top, we're talking about this period 5,500 to 3,500 years ago. And what we're going to be talking about are really the iconic, what are sometimes called in the popular literature, the red paint people. And we should we should say at the outset we're going to be talking about um, uh, basically cemeteries which were excavated. Uh, we we wouldn't excavate these kinds of sites now, but there's going to be a discussion um, of cemeteries. Um, and so just to kind of flag that at the beginning, and basically sort of the origins of of our modern understanding of this period are. Uh, from Newfoundland. And so this is from Elmer Harp in the 50s, Jim Tuck in the 60s, and it's at the Port of Schwa site, which is on the northern peninsula of Newfoundland, where kind of inadvertently there'd been some excavation going on for a building, a, I think a billiards parlor or something. And yeah, it was renovating a hotel or something like that, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. They, I, I always I get confused because I think it was a billiards parlor run by a guy named Billiards. It's something like this. And I get completely confused by this. And and I, I always second guess myself on this. And so listener, don't check the show notes because I'm not going to be able to figure this out before we go to press. <laughs> the um uh, <laughs> and so so Elmer Harp out of Dartmouth, Jim Tuck out of uh Newfoundland, um, then kind of worked on this this question. And one of the things about this cemetery is if you're in Newfoundland, right? It's supposed to be kind of classic. That's hunter-gatherer country, you know, unless you're at Lonson Meadow. And, but what came out were these, you know, burials with red ochre, which is a, a red-colored hematite. Yep, 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 exactly. So an, an iron oxide powder. So if you're trying to think of what, like, what the color is, think about, like, basically a much more brighter, a much brighter rusty color, basically, but a, a much more red than than rust would look like, but it's the same um, um, iron oxidized iron, basically. I believe it's the color that our names appear in on our new stickers, is it not? Oh. You know, I'm going to trust you, you on that one. 
<laughs> and in addition to this basically cemetery um, that was that appeared, um, there were gouges, which we've talked about in past episodes, groundstone artifacts, kind of hollowed out in the middle, um, slate knives, bone daggers, flakestone points. And there were like 100 graves here. It was included with animal remains, beads, slate to- stone tools, whale effigies. The sorts of things that we would associate with complexity, right? If you were to sort of list this trait list to an anthropologist, they'd say, yeah, that's that's complexity. It's not kind of classically understood hunter-gatherer cemeteries. And, 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 so, if, I'm not, and if, if I'm not wrong here, much of this stuff had not been heavily used. Like a lot of this stuff was essentially made to be included in these graves, right? Like that's that's another thing is that when you see these graves, these very elaborate graves, Many of the items that go with these people um, are are more probably talismans or things that they kept with them and weren't used even in a hunt, maybe. Like sometimes they may have been used, but many of these objects look like they were made exclusively to be placed with this individual, or they were things that maybe the individual carried with them over time uh, and that were buried with them, as opposed to being used like in a functional way. Yeah, exactly. And and so. And, and some of them are even kind of so fragile that you can't really imagine them having a functional use. You know, we get yes. these, we're going to talk about this more, but what archaeologists in this region call bayonets, these kind of long slate things that um, are so kind of fragile, you can't really imagine that they would have a practical use. Um, and the take home point, you know, maybe from all this was that it's this highly visible archaeological phenomenon. Um, but the other point is really this sure doesn't seem like what the archaic was supposed to be, right? This is yeah. not the archaic stage we understand. Especially with, in this region. Well, exactly, right? Where we we, we talked about last uh it was gonna get confusing because we got a special episode inserted there, but in the in the last uh, a fortnight. <laughs> in the middle ago, archaic. Early yes. er, early archaic, I guess we called it. Yeah. Yeah, the middle archaic was Bill Farley. The <laughs> he just appeared. <laughs> the um but uh this is what this is what happens. You 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 reminisce about Bill Farley, and he's, he's such a, a vortex of energy. You immediately forget what you were saying, um, and and here I am, you know, playing a land game with Ken. And we're about to go on a go on a raid, um, but uh, it's not an inside joke for the listener because they heard the last episode, so it's okay. This is still we're still going to bring in audience on this one, um, but but we we talked about this idea that that the archaic was so low visibility for the first you know 5,000 years or so that people didn't know it was really here until like the 80s you know so so this idea that we're really kind of starting to in in Newfoundland we've got this complicated phenomenon um going on there's a documentary made about this uh I think you've seen it Ken is it um it's by it's it's by Timerick is this the red paint people one like the main uh uh what's it called not pbs uh nova um, is this the nova yeah it's a nova it's a nova yeah. episode yeah yeah it's they, actually yeah. on youtube i think now isn't it it is now yeah dave yeah. and i watched it on an old vhs at at his place once and it's super interesting but the it'll be linked in the show notes it will be linked in the show notes um unless unless ken passes out and i peace out to death valley before that happens <laughs> which is which is not a metaphor listener i am actually going to death valley next week so i'll be I'll be literally uh, live from the high Nevada desert. And I'll be walking through the shadow of the Valley of Death. (laughs) He looks well, listener. Don't worry about it. Don't. (laughs) 
<laughs> doing great. The uh, I mean, not not to not to bring Bill Farley back again, but as he told me about my dissertation, D is for done. <laughs> so, yep, it's, that's the that's the territory I'm in right now. Yeah, and uh, but you've got this this sort of highly visible phenomenon, you know, and and in this this uh, you know late archaic period in Newfoundland, you've got these these really pretty visible. And in the 50s and 60s, when when Harp and Tucker are working on these pretty idiosyncratic um, phenomena, okay? So this is in the North, right? And now let's bring the listener back down to a much earlier work in the South. And we've mentioned um, Warren King Moorhead before, um, who's sometimes called the Dean of American Archaeology, affiliated with the Robert S. Peabody Institute out of Andover, Massachusetts. Ran around mostly Maine, a little bit in New Brunswick, with his gigantic trowel and his team of excavators called the Force, pretty much targeting um, indigenous burials. Right, we wouldn't do this now, and really, really targeting these quote red paint burials. And and um, why was it that he was able to find them so easily? Well, was it because uh, he basically developed? an early predictive model that meant he was testing interesting riverine locations. Exactly. And, and that these, these cemeteries appear to be placed in sort of significant places in the landscape. So you're into places, Ken, you use this placemaking phrase with a hyphen sometimes. Yeah. What, tell us about that a little bit. Um, Basically it means that, so when we talk about placemaking, we're talking about people living in particular natural settings right and and the sort of the argument is that a natural space becomes a cultural place um through sort of repeated actions and connections and sort of um you know you may start you may come into a place and you camp there because uh there's a a fish run and but then you live there for a season and you come back and then you invite friends to come with you and it becomes more and more important important over time and you build up uh, not just sort of uh, a cultural, um, like material culture in that area, you build up sort of a memory and a, and a sort of social importance of, of that place. And and over time, what was at one time a natural setting sort of becomes this um, cultural place that is imbued, sort of you identify yourself as much with the place as um, as you do sort of with each other. And so we are from here um this is where we're from this is what we this is the kinds of things we do in this place and so it becomes uh, a really important cultural thing um and it becomes a, a social thing and and it's bound up in identity and memory and and uh um and and that is passed on sort of and reproduced through all the things that you do at these places basically um so what is it what is the sort of go-to line uh uh, made and is made by. Uh, the... <laughs> we we have another way of saying that the, that uh, uh, we would have to put an explicit tag on here. But, yeah, uh, uh, I I think the line is made and is made by, emplaced and is emplacened by or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah. So so <laughs> so so place making is the act of making place like making a cultural place so uh, uh essentially um uh you know these places in the landscape whether you call them persistent places or 
or you called it, you know, act of placemaking. It's basically that stuff happens at locations that people do that become sort of structuring elements of their society in some ways, right? You know, like you guys have a great example from Port Jolly where a house, a sweat house was made uh, with a, with a sort of core axial feature that we'll probably talk about here in a few weeks um, that it seems like all the houses were built sort of in on this structure. And so there was a way to arrange the way that you, you lived inside the house. And that was based around um, making that place in the landscape first kind of. Yeah. So you, you get these, and this is, I think this is sort of unsurprising to those of us who are humans, right? Our listeners <laughs> yeah, exactly. who are not like, chatbots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and, and there's some interesting stuff on this and, and we'll return to this too, but the, sorry, what you were just saying reminded me of, so I just made kind of the, that I think we all have connections to places, right? We see places, we're struck by them. We recognize that places shape us, but there's also just really interesting stuff about this in the Northeast, right? So, um, Micah Pauling wrote this really interesting paper about Wabanaki perceptions of home in the last, it's in the last five years, maybe. And uh, he he talks about uh, Henry David Thoreau, who is in Western Maine with his uh, Wabanaki guy Joe Paulus, and he he's going to drop Joe Paulus off at uh, uh, basically near near the Kineo, uh the source for Kineo Rylite, and they're on the boat, and Thoreau really admired Paulus. He was uh, one of his three most admired people and according to his journals and Thoreau said you must be happy I'm, I'm, we're going to drop you off and you're going to go home which was to uh, a place called Indian Island near Orono, Maine and uh, and and Paula said doesn't make much difference to me home's kind of anywhere or something like that and yeah. it's sort of implying that it's this idea that the whole territory was kind of home you know and yeah, like Chilton talks about homeland as a concept, right? That, you know, yeah. there are like places within the landscape that become, um, that aren't just specific locations, that's whole territories. Like uh, more, more and Thompson talk about this, like in yes. the Green River in the late Archaic as well, that, you know, um, like sort of the, people were brought into these landscapes uh, in the Southeast of the United States, um, kind of attracted by the shell that was there first. Um, but then these whole river valleys basically became like sort of, identity right like you know the, the people that lived within the valley themselves were identified with each other and that like there were other people around them that you know this notion of territoriality is sort of built on this notion of place as well too yeah i think that's a really good point and so i'm sensing that ken and i committed to someday finishing an episode in under an hour and 30 minutes <laughs> should stop riffing on this idea but what i want the listener to put a pin in this though is that the idea that they should recognize which is that people can have expansive ideas of place which i'm going to return to to make an argument places that they're connected to which i'm going to return to to make an argument <laughs> later in the show so um you know feel free to rewind i know many of you are actively taping this show <laughs> you can you can put this back in your tape machine run it backwards i believe it's called scrubbing isn't it uh oh the is streaming it? the streaming age oh interesting i didn't know that like when you like slide the little timer thingy back and forth Oh, is that called scrubbing? I think so. Oh, interesting. Huh. We'll confirm yeah. this. This may be a uh, uh, Hakuna Errata. 
this could next be week. this could be a Kuna errata. That will be next week, next fortnight. Next week, I'm going to be uh, That's in the right. desert. Yeah, yeah. Our yeah. next episode will actually come from Portland, won't it? Are you going to be in Portland? Oh yeah, two <laughs> weeks I am in Portland. Okay, so that actually means, listener, that next week uh, or next next fortnight, what is time? <laughs> what is time? Uh, next fortnight, the listener will be getting what is a special episode during our regularly uh scheduled uh susquehanna episode but we'll push yes. that back yeah yeah so it's gonna be there'll probably be a listener there with you at the bar um making a suit out of uh our new stickers could be good that be. would be great yeah but um okay but so we've, we've talked about expansive ideas of place and so now let's just kind of reel in back so we we were to catch you up in case you've lost where Ken and I were as we wandered away. Um, we've just talked about port where there were all sorts of interesting, where there's basically an interesting cemetery with all sorts of elabor- elaboration. There's another term that anthropologists, archaeologists use that we wouldn't ordinarily associate with hunter-gatherers. Sure, it doesn't seem like what we think the archaic's supposed to be. And so then it kind of turns up to this fellow Moorhead um in basically the around the turn of the century and by the turn of the century i mean around 1900 is running around chasing out red paint people these burials that have they often actually don't have many human remains in them if any human remains but they are features they're immovable object artifacts with red ochre included in them and really diagnostic artifacts which include shark teeth plummets gouges salts contracting stem points um, and then notably they include bayonets of various shapes these artifacts and these forms of burial that moorhead is finding have an awful lot to do have an awful lot in common they really resemble the kinds of materials that porter exhibited so what this suggested to jim tuck was that there was this massive shared cultural phenomenon in the later archaic period that basically went from Maine all the way up to the kind of northern areas in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so what Tuck kind of suggested in many ways presaged some of what we were thinking about in terms of the problems with how we understand what a hunter-gatherer is. There are all sorts of things hunter-gatherers do even if they're not these kind of classic Northwest Coast examples that are basically complex, right? So we've got hunter-gatherers acting in ways that hunter-gatherers don't often act. Does that kind of match with your sense of the baseline here, Ken? Yeah, yeah. And they're sharing like a, a tradition, like a no, a way of, of burying the dead over, you know, thousands of, like hundreds to thousands of kilometers, right? And, you know, these are not people that are seeing each other every day. But there's a communication that this is how we do this. Um, that's being trans, you know, that that's that's carrying over a huge area. Um, and again, I think this this is the sort of idea about identity that is not particularly surprising to the kind of contemporary listener. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that this this is not, this is how we sort of expect humans to act. I think, and there's a really classic example of this phenomenon that occurs in new brunswick and that's the cow point cemetery and so this is excavated by david sanger and it i think is the 
would you say that cow? So I, I've actually never quite been sure. Is cow point the defining example of the Moorhead phase, which is what we use to describe this southern kind of variant of the uh, late maritime archaic? I would um, say so. Yeah, at least from the yeah. cemetery perspective, I think it's kind of like cow point and Turner Farm are sort of the two sort of classic examples of it, one being a cemetery and one being a, a, a habitation site, right? Like a, um, sort of two sides to a coin in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but Turner uh, Farms but, on, on Penn Bay in Maine, Penobscot yeah, Bay. Yeah. 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 And so, so um, Cow Point is, is uh, near Grand Lake in, in sort of south central New Brunswick um, along the Velostog. Um, interesting too, that the site was um, identified by some local collectors um uh, a vocational archaeologist i think they brought it to sanger's attention didn't they like this was there's kind of an interesting story where he got called away from work at minister's island didn't he he was he was doing other excavation yeah. work um and he was on um so at this time the canadian museum uh, was called the national museum of man um and had funding basically to um had sort of realized that um, all sorts of development and things were happening all across Canada in the post-world, post-Second World War uh, setting that were threatening archaeological resources. And so the National Museum of Man fanned out like the, you know, 10 archaeologists that worked in the country um, to essentially document um, the archaeology, the rapidly um, threatened um, uh, archaeological record across Canada. And so Sanger was in the province at the time doing some work. Um, and the coast and in, in around Passamaquoddy Bay area at, at Minister's Island. Um, and was this the site was brought to his attention and sort of arrived there and immediately realized um, how important it was. Um, My interest in this was was because I was interested in Minister's Island. I think you were at one point too, Ken. And um, the, I transcribed David Sanger's journals from that period. And I, David Sanger's kind of a, a legendarily uh, I think detailed note taker actually. And so I was surprised by the terseness of some of the entries. One of my favorites yeah. being just that the day's entry was boat accident in AM <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a feeling we've perhaps all had. And, uh, and, and then and it, be, it became apparent though, as I was reading these, that this was because Sanger was uh, substantially involved in actually setting up his work at Cal Point, which was threatened. I think essentially the fear that it was going to be looted out. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah. and, you know, there's kind of famous pictures of like they had some sort of crude fencing that they had put around it. And like a, there's a sign up, I think, in one of the pictures that you could see that, you know, that they're trying to keep, you know, no trespassing and that kind of thing. And they were excavating quickly because they were concerned that essentially uh, like this. He, I think he mentions in the monograph, like they were coming back and like in the morning, you could see that there had been people at the site, basically. Yeah, that's my recollection as well of the yeah. of the monograph. Um, and the monograph will be in the show notes, too. So um which is which is worth looking at. Um, so and so Cap Point's on this small lake, drains into Grand Lake. It's eighty-five kilometers inland. Still, probably some tidal effects, and it's got fifty-nine or more burial features. Um, it has some teeth that were recovered, but primarily it's uh, small ochre-stained pits, which is just flexed, so uh, kind of curled up rather than extended burials. And it's got 300, more than 300 artifacts, which are, which really fit with this, you know, very much these artifacts would not be out of place with the Port of Schwaz Cemetery we described. Yep. Shark teeth, plummets, gouges, celts, constructing stem points. And then the bayonets are slightly different. They're these long bayonets 
with uh, on one side uh, these kind of hexagonal patterns on them. And so when we're describing these bayonets, what we're talking about are slate bayonets, which I'm realizing as I'm saying the phrase slate bayonet that I've been interested in archaeology long enough. This means nothing to the listener. And Ken knows exactly what I'm describing. Yeah. So so a bayonet, um, think about uh, the, the the spiky knife thing that comes off the end of uh, one of those like old timey guns, basically. Right. And slate like uh, so most people know, uh, think when they think of slate, they think of like a, a kind of a tingy rock that uh, um, that you, you know, back in the like 1930s or 40s, you might have slate pencils for writing on ch chalkboards or uh, that sort of thing. Or you might have like a, a really nice cheese board made out of slate now. Um, uh, but uh, basically it's a, it's a softer rock um, that, uh, um, you know, kind of grayish in color. Um, and, and so these are uh, probably like 15 or so centimeters long, like 15 to 30 centimeters long. Like they're fairly elaborate. Like actually they might be longer than that. Like I'm trying to think like, yeah, probably at least 30 centimeters, some of these. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and they're very narrow. Like they'd be three to four centimeters wide at most and, and probably like maybe one to two centimeters thick. So these are really fine, um, uh, uh, very, you know, pointed. And then they have these geometric designs on the surfaces of them um, alongside these, um, these indentations on the sides that Gabe had, had, uh, had mentioned. And, um, they're different than the ones from Cordeschois in, in a way that they, we think that they represent something. That's right. So the, um, the ones at Cordeschois tend to be, uh, look a little bit more like actually kind of like a trowel or yeah. like, um, and by that, I mean like a mason's trowel or like something you'd use to like a slice of pie. They're a little bit bigger at the at the bottom. Um, whereas the ones at Turner Farm may represent or may or they certainly seem to resemble the sword on a swordfish. So cow point. Think about it. And at Turner Farm, I guess. At cow point, yeah, they look like, yes. Sorry, yeah. At cow point, they look, <laughs> at cow point, they look like bayonets. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah, with, and, and these may resemble swordfish. You're, you're, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm telling you, Ken. Trying to trying to think through. Do you, do you know that diagram we talked about last fortnight, where it was Robinson had the burial components and then the, the and the habitation components the and the question marks? Sometimes it's like describing the stuff, and you're sort of like, oh yeah, you know, I, I'm just gonna jump through this. I was thinking about this the other day with um these. Uh, it's like they're all sort of like David Black's uh, stratigraphy diagrams, right? Where he's he's using um the kind of diagrams that historical archaeologists use. And he makes very clear that even though he knows full well one stratum relates to another, he can't say that with scientific certainty. So he puts his big, <laughs> they can't connect, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, that, that's how we, I felt like just right we, there. We've already, I... we've already gone into placemaking like at, uh, before explaining anything else. So like we're, uh, we're, we've got people hanging on by just the, by just their fingertips right now so that's, yeah exactly uh... exactly the the folks in the in the archaeology lab at st mary's university just opened the fridge for another beer i think <laughs> i think that's what we heard and uh but okay so to return to this idea we've got these bayonets and now let's uh i don't I mean we unfortunately do not have someone who can kind of in, we we do have original music for this program but it doesn't make the kind of doctor who soundtrack that scans over to us talking about a habitation site and so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to imagine now 
I could add a swoosh. You can add a swoosh. That's great. Um, does that mean Nike sponsors us if we do that? I mean, all of a sudden <laughs> we're like the University of Oregon. And um, the Turner Farm, which is uh, an island in Penobscot Bay, and it's an example of one of these late maritime archaic habitation sites. So swoosh sound inserted. And the thing that the listener should be really interested in about this site is that the uh, the listener can't see, but Ken is Ken is rapidly changing plugs on his earphones, which makes me think he can't hear me. Can you hear me now, Ken? Oh, I cannot hear Ken though now. And we're back. We've got some refreshments and a and a charger. Um, and and I think we are in Penobscot Bay. We are indeed. And so um, we were talking about the Turner Farm site um, because it's an example of as Ken and I were just talking about this difficulty connecting in the archaic these habitation sites and cemetery sites and Penobscot Bay is an example of a habitation site um worked at on by Bruce Bork and also but for what we're going to talk about right now there's uh the zoo archaeology was done by Art Spice and uh Rod uh Lewis who's uh yeah Hedden right uh no oh, Spies and Lewis. Hedden. Yeah, Spies and Lewis. That's right. Spies and yeah. Lewis. Uh Robert Lewis, right? Yeah. Uh just a second. It's on my shelf here. Okay, yeah. So Ken is gonna check his shelf. And but yeah, the, uh, the reason this is particularly um relevant here is, is that Robert A. Lewis. Made, it is Robert A. Lewis. Great. Yeah. Beautiful book, actually. It is, and it's it's uh just a fantastic zoark analysis, actually, of, yeah. of this site. It and, becomes a comprehensive, like, regional analysis in the end. That's right. Yeah, it does. And there's also some, like, really interesting stuff in there that we'll talk about when we talk about the woodland. But, like, um, a sort of thoughtful consideration of whether or not Wabanaki people were hunting whales. Yeah. Um, you know, just really good book. Uh, it's available from the Maine Art Society. And you should acquire it. I think it's it's extremely inexpensive. Uh, it's... Like all things that the main Ark Society produces, it's shockingly inexpensive. Yeah. So we should just, I mean, they're not sponsoring us. But we should just do a shameless plug for the main Ark Society, which is that it's its actually really worth joining, especially if you're a student. Yeah. I think it's a, so I think even for me, it's still only about 15 bucks a year American um, for a full membership. I, I can't remember. It might be a little bit more than that now, but um, you get... Uh, a peer-reviewed or well uh, a journal that's uh, has some peer-reviewed articles some not uh you get a newsletter that comes out every couple of months uh and you get a discount on stuff in the store too if i remember correctly you do um, yeah and uh, and the publications that the main um arc society has released are, are really high quality um archaeology publications several monographs on really important sites in maine um and uh, I think the most recent one is the monograph on the Goddard site by Steve Cox. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's foreshadowing. I would say. Yeah. What exactly. we just done there. Yeah. 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 Um, but you may have you may recall now that listener, even thirty minutes later, now that we've we were talking about uh, how these bayonets at Cal Point resemble swordfish swords or swordfish rostra. A, it's a word for your next cocktail party. Um, is that at, at Turner Farm and at other of these late maritime archaic habitation sites, there is a fair bit of swordfish. 
There are Rastra, there are other swordfish remains. And so, Ken, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but one of the other big late maritime archaic sites in Maine is a site called the Nevin site uh, from central Maine. Yep. And in, it's pretty close to Goddard, isn't it? Not far off. Yeah. yeah. So Blue, Blue Hill Bay, I guess. And um, my undergraduate uh, advisor was Brian Robinson, who was an expert on the Moorhead I mean, he's expert on a lot of things, but worked a lot on the Moorhead phase, wrote his dissertation on the Moorhead phase. And I was in his lab class and he had sent a graduate student out for basically a bucket of Moorhead's backfill from the Nevin site um, that we were processing in this lab class. And so I'm processing it through graded geological sieves and I you know, shake it and this, most of the stuff in it, I kind of recognize, but there's this one piece of bone. I have no idea what it is look totally unique totally unlike you know anything i was familiar with at that juncture and it was a piece of swordfish bone from the nevin site oh cool which is yeah really cool and um something like that will stick with you you know right like you're you know yeah it's a real kind of evocative moment um and anyway so this connection to swordfish appears to be a, a real thing for people in the late maritime archaic and swordfish are um, an interesting species. And I'm going to go ahead and disclose here that I don't entirely know what to make of swordfish. There's the classic um, kind of old man in the sea understanding of swordfish, right? You know, which is the um, the listener will recognize from that reference just how highly literary I am. <laughs> and that... Uh, but, you know, it's a guy, you know, you got you hunt swordfish and they're they're big and they're difficult to hunt. And they're these large, like kind quick of, moving, probably aggressive, yeah. like. And they're prone to maybe come up through the bottom of your canoe. So we assume these people are hunting in uh, in dugout canoes, which are tippy, and, which are tippy <laughs> indeed. And um, and so you've got this connection to this this really big kind of important fish that we've now seen both in the archaeological record of what people are eating and in the ritual record of what people are including in their cemeteries yeah and there's a there's a really fantastic paper from matt betts david black and susan blair that talks about maybe a little bit why so um we know that the the late maritime archaic groups are really fast uh fixated on fishing and fisheries um, a lot of the tools that you find in these graves are are probably could be construed as fishing um, implements. So you've got plummets that are probably could be construed as net sinkers of some kind. So indicating that kind of fishery. You've got uh, harpoons and and uh, and that sort of thing. But um, uh, uh, Matt and and uh, and David and Sue have a paper where they talk about how um, the inclusion of shark teeth in these late maritime archaic burials and these moorhead burials may be an indication of um, the sort of uh, a ritual importance of sharks being a predator for swordfish and that the people who were hunting the swordfish um, who were buried in these sites may have been embodying that shark when they were out on that hunt. And so they are becoming the predator-prey relationship between the human hunting the swordfish and the, sh and the shark hunting the swordfish. Um, the human becomes that shark uh, or, or embodies that shark to be able to make that hunt, to have that successful hunt. And there's substantial literature out there that suggests that this is the kind of relationship that hunter-gatherers tend to have with animals, right? Yeah. 
including yeah. contemporary um, Inuit hunters and uh, um, or like an eth ethnographic uh, uh, Inuit and, and Wabanaki groups, and that's uh, you know sort of embodying the the prey uh, the the predator species and the prey species and, and the what is the the is it the Tanner line that the um, the the animal gives themselves up to the hunter. Yeah, so there's this great book, uh, the uh, Bringing Home Animals by Adrian Tanner, where the essentially uh, Ken and I are not doing well at keeping this under. Uh, there's no pitch clock. The the listener who's been following my destruction, my concern about the destruction of Major League Baseball, will be aware that there's no pitch clock on this uh, on this program. And uh, but yeah, and, and Tanner wrote this book, Bring Home Animals, basically about the relationship between hunters and their um their prey being being different right that there's these these sort of animal masters who because you've behaved correctly will give up the animals to you essentially and so this is, tends to be particularly true for kind of prominent dangerous species like swordfish right yeah um and we certainly see lots of evidence for the importance of, of swordfish you know probably including there being represented on these uh rostra or sorry their rostra being represented on these um bayonets in addition to um evidence for the open water of capturing for swordfish we see uh, evidence at turner farm for a huge amount of fishing for cod bruce barks actually argued that they were fishing so much cod that they fished down the food web enough that there was actually a kind of local effect that the cod stocks were locally diminished. Um, Crazy, at, yeah, remarkable. Um, I'm not a zoo archaeologist enough to evaluate that claim, but based on isotopic evidence, it seems believable. Um, they're also eating moose and caribou, uh, waterfowl and great auk. We also see during this period that uh, clams are incredibly important. And so art species uh, did has done a, a few papers now actually on pointing out just how important shellfish are to the diet for pre-contact people, and they're not eating much seal. So one thing the the listener may be sort of thinking about here is that okay, well this sort of sounds like um, uh, a, a scary way to go out and make your living hunting these swordfish, right? Did they're <laughs> They call them swordfish, you know, because they've got this this thing, right? And they, they like to burst up to the bottom of your canoe, and uh, and and screw you up. And but they're also just they're huge, right? I mean, so the you know in the in the Hemingway um, novella, it's uh, it's late in late in the evening. We can call it a novella. <laughs> um, uh, he's hunting alone while listening to or wishing he had a radio. I think to listen to the Yankees games, um, but it makes a lot more sense to hunt these things as, as part of a team. And so we're kind of returning to that, that idea about complexity, right? There's ideas that, well, are when you're, when you're capturing animals of this size, right? We've certainly got, got examples of, of like, you know, the, the Kung San or other, you know, groups will, will hunt uh, large animals and have a very egalitarian ethos towards it. They'll go out and hunt them together. But, but more often we, we might be thinking about, the kinds of political organization where we're thinking about something much closer to being kind of a, a whaling society, right? Where we've got people who own ships, right? And who go out and, and have to uh, deal with, with landing large fish and this kind of thing. And so 
are you know does this imply a certain amount uh along with the burials of social complexity so there's been talk about boat captains and this sort of thing yeah and um, it's and it's not just the the fishing like so loring has made a similar argument that this may be the reason why you see for example um ramachurt um uh, which is this uh, uh particular type of stone that we've talked about i think earlier in the show um that makes it all its way from the northern tip of labrador down into um uh parts of uh, the maritimes and and new england during the late archaic or maritime archaic and i think he attributes that to this notion of of boat captains maybe moving things around that these you know there are these um what we sometimes call big men i guess in in uh uh, would that would that be would I be stretching it too far by saying that? The uh, well, big men is also what they've been calling Ken and I since about year one of the pandemic. But they, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I I think that's exactly right. And and so I, I can tell Ken. So Ken and I both, I work at UNB. Ken did his first two degrees at UNB. I did my second degree at UNB. Um, and we we actually are unable to say the phrase big man without thinking of the VHS tape of Anka's big maca. Which which is that uh, which is about that phenomenon I think but 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 what do you mean when you when you say big man Ken uh, so b- basically these are um, uh, we sometimes call them social aggrandizers and so these are prominent individuals in society who um, essentially have done something that they or have access to maybe a particular resource um, they're a particularly adept hunter maybe um, and so they kind of they kind of gain social capital. Um, but they're also able to sort of mobilize labor to sort of perpetuate that social capital. So maybe you're a good hunter, people recognize that, and so they want to hunt with you. And then because of that, you actually get more from the hunt each time. And so you have within your group, um, you sort of build up this like actual, you know, material capital. So you've actually got more food and that ends up sort of perpetuating sort of the social and political capital within the group more generally. Um, and so this big men, so these are the individuals within society that sort of, um, they accumulate wealth, um, uh, both through their own actions, but also by motivating others to do things um, that assist them in this. And, and, and they kind of are able to keep people um, within that movement. As the good times roll, uh, uh, they can continue to aggrandize, but in, there, there are many different case examples of this sort of falling apart in, in different situations. And if we were silence and service we'd say that's that would be kind of a a tribe tribe level of organization, level of organization yeah so it's yeah, probably so, 20 to 50 people i think is tribe is that sort uh, of the, the window that they use that's still bandable i think is that still bandable yeah yeah so we're talking yeah. 50 to 200 yeah <laughs> the um the intro to anthropology student will know exactly what we're talking about and everyone else will neither know nor care <laughs> that's okay <laughs> Um, but basically, it's this, this kind of idea we're, we're riffing on this idea that we're separating complexity from these fundamental economic concerns, right? Because Anka is really worried about a pig, I think, in that movie, right? I, I will fully admit I have n- no recollection of this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Is this the like the um, the cooler ring one? No, no, no. Anka's wearing it t-shirt that says why don't we do it in the road do you remember this i don't know if i ever saw this you must have you went to unv well it, it was pumped through the vents in in annex c well there's there's oh, interesting. i was pumping something else through the vents uh in my undergrads so. <laughs> yeah. yeah so was i so i was watching august big manga <laughs> the uh okay anyway no i but i i but but so he's, he's dealing with i, I think 
essentially a, a kind of pig roast. And um, and then um, I apologize to the listener. My my cat is coming who wears a bell. <laughs> so you, you may hear him. Um, but uh, but no, Anka or or the um, uh, people who deal with yams, so domesticates of other kinds. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so this sort of tribal level organization. But okay. Now, listener, Ken and I are going to try to tie this together in a way that made some sense. So we've talked about uh, basically a really prominent and really archaeologically visible group from Newfoundland and one from Maine and the Maritimes, Maritime Peninsula. And we've talked about economic similarities that they all had. We've talked about similarities in their burial um, practices. And for each group, we've suggested that there may be uh, implications of complexity. This concept that we introduced at the beginning of the show. We've also sort of talked about the ways in which these people fit into the sort of popular understanding of archaeology in this region. And so at the very, very beginning of this show, we talked about Jim Tuck and his sense that this was a big, broadly integrated culture, basically running from Maine all the way up to the northern tip of Newfoundland and Labrador. And so subsequent to that, though, that view that Tuck had um, was countered by uh, Bruce Bork. And and the listener can't see this, but I'm wearing a lapel pin because uh, Bruce and I disagreed fairly vociferously about this question which we're about to discuss and we're going to put a link to bruce's book the swordfish hunters in the show notes because bruce is a very thoughtful archaeologist has a lot to say about um some of this and he and i are almost uh 98 and a half percent at odds and how we view this so <laughs> i just i you know the and i and i thought about i i googled steel man arguments how can i steel man bruce's argument you know what would be the what i should do is get on the show tonight i'm going to really portray Bruce's argument in the strongest possible terms. I think the way to do that is actually that you should just read Bruce's book, you know, read Bruce's book and kind of compare it to my views on this. And I think, Ken, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I get the sense that your views on this are somewhat aligned with mine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, uh, I, I, I was not, I, I'm not as intimately involved in this as you are. And you and Matt have a forthcoming publication uh, on some of this stuff and, and have, have written about it in your book recently but it was actually Matt that kind of pointed out this, um, like literally pointed to the the similarities between um, Portishois and Cow Point when I was I visited the Canadian Museum, um, and this would have been probably I would have been an undergrad I think then, and Matt was kind enough to take me into the collections room and basically showed me all of this material from one spot, and they showed me all this material from the other. And he kind of like said, was like, you notice anything similar between them? And I was like, well, they look like almost, you know, like this is pretty similar stuff. Like I'm just looking at stone tools and a few other things here. And it looks very similar. Like you would got, kind of draw a connection even just at a cursory level, right? Um, and so so I would tend, and out of that, I, you know, have grown to see the, these connections that I find it difficult to see how you couldn't see these connections in some way. So um, so I'm going to let you take it from here because you actually thought about this in some detail and quite recently. And so 
So it, it, you mentioned Matt, and I should actually say that almost all of my uh, any insight I have about this is actually almost entirely derived from from Matt being quite thoughtful about this. Um, and and so I'm riffing heavily on on Matt's work here. And I should just sort of say I think that lots of these people, you know, I think I think including Bruce, you know, recognize that there's all sorts of similarities um, ostensibly between these various kinds of groups. Uh, and by various kinds of groups, I mean various like regional groups. And my cat is just totally barrel house through here, so I apologize for the the noise and my distraction. Um, but if if you're Bruce Bork, I think the argument essentially is that the groups in Maine and the Maritimes are different because there's this huge spatial difference that seemingly when um, uh, Bruce Bork was working in places like Turner Farm, there was a big hole in the record, right? There was, there's not, there didn't seem like there was much late Maritime archaic stuff from Nova Scotia, for instance. Um, he also sort of, I think, you know, quite correctly sort of said, well, there's there's some real subsistence uh differences between the the Newfoundland folks and the Maine folks, right? In Newfoundland, we see that people are hunting sea mammals. You know, virtually no, there's there's hardly any seal remains from Turner Farm. There's some. But there's a lot Mostly, at Port There's a ton at Port right? Um, you know, in part because that location is like perfect for you to just camp there and just, you know, club Watch seals while they hop out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, where you get caribou and swordfish and deer and moose and selfish at places like Turner Farm. And then also that essentially in, in Newfoundland, you've got some basically a subarctic environment. And at Penn Bay, you've got a pretty temperate climate. Um, and so what what Matt and I put in the chapter and really what, what Matt put in the chapter, I'll take credit only for the one typo I discovered today while, while, while reading this, which was that we screwed up the radiocarbon dates at Turner Farm by 1,000 years because there's a big difference between a five and a six if they're in the wrong spot. And uh, was that um, really a, a large area of occupation for, for an indigenous culture is not actually that unusual. Um, and in some of our private uh, collections work, you know, examining private collections in Nova Scotia, we've identified a fair bit of, of really clearly late maritime archaic material. Uh, one of my personal favorites is we were doing a, a basically we, we do these kind of collector events where collectors come and show their collections and we record used to record information about them. And one came in as a whole coffee table. I assume you've had experiences like this, Ken, where it's a it's a coffee table and the top has been plexiglassed. Yeah. It's and sort you know, of sealed in there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. It's um but it uh had some merit definitely maritime archaic material in it. Yeah. Uh and uh but also there's been these drawdowns on the Mersey River, places like that. And there's been maritime archaic material from from those settings as well um and then you know in uh matt zoo archaeologist so he thinks about animal remains hunting animals a lot and he's kind of pointed out that whether you're hunting pinnipeds which is uh, a very fancy word for seals or you're hunting big fish you're using canoes harpoons lances um these are really similar kinds of technologies right so it's sure the the animal changes as it would because the environment has changed. Yeah. But this is still a similar kind of life way, right? It's a similar way of thinking about the world. And we know that there are cosmological similarities. We see inclusions of shark teeth. We see different attitudes towards animals, but still with these inclusions in these kinds of cemeteries. 
Um, and then finally, yeah, the, the climate is different, uh, but the forest conditions during the late maritime archaic are actually pretty similar between the northern end and uh, so that is, you know, northern Newfoundland uh, and southern end. So let's say Penn Bay and the faunal diversity is actually pretty identical. So there's no real reason to think that we wouldn't have similar uh, abilities of these sorts of groups to flourish. And, you know, in fact, in places like Labrador, as Chris Wolf has published in our hit piece from last week, we get these, you know, really profound evidence for complexity, despite these kind of um, more less lovely climates than we enjoy yeah. in what, such what balmy we, places. As, yeah, as what we sort of traditionally call like marginal climates, right? Yeah. Like difficult places to live. Yeah, today, I don't know. I, I don't really want to be in like Labrador today, you know? It's, uh, I mean, your field season's over pretty early. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. I mean, but that's just because you've wrecked your helicopter and you've had to crawl out of the burning wreckage, isn't it? <laughs> I, I've never seen something in North America quite like a timber fly. That is what is a, a timber fly? It's basically like a, it's like a mosquito that's about, that's got a stinger that's about as long as your pinky. Um, and they're, they're about the size of a, like of an, like a deer fly. Oh no. Like, but they're like, they're really long bodies and these giant stingers on them. And, so how, uh, do you swell up? Uh, I think, yeah, I think you're essentially like you're, you're, you're down, like your limb is, is harmed. <laughs> there was a, there was a, an Inu fellow on crew on the crew who had a, I don't know if it was like one of the zapper rackets, but I remember like <laughs> looking more like a, like a, almost like a racquetball racket. And that was what he was like. He had prepared to like swat away timber flies. That's hard. The first time I saw one, I was like, "I this is what you would expect to see in like the jungle, not wow in Goose Bay." The uh, and and the listeners know Ken has worked in the jungle. I have, yeah. And I I saw tarantulas, but I didn't see timber fly. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which one's scarier? Uh, I don't know. I think the timber fly really. Yeah, there's something something about being able to fly that just isn't great. Um, so the listener that will will detect and and I'm I'm wearing a pin that says woke Vanguard because I've got this this uh, this this somewhat controversial view of this, but the that I have a sense that there's just this big kind of continuity across this area, and that's interesting because it sets um, a substrate for our discussion about continuity that's really going to persist over the next. Um, several episodes of this podcast where we're going to, I think, probably emphasize more similarity than dissimilarity through time yep. and take even when we discuss uh, next week, which will be our, our, I think next week will be our, our most serious test of discontinuity where we may actually discuss population movement in a serious way. Yep. Um, but that we are basically going to sort of argue that, that regionally, there's a um, at this period. There's this big shared cultural substrate going from you know Penn Bay or probably really Seabrook Marsh, probably if you were to extend it to some of uh, Brian Robinson's work down here, um, all the way up into Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're willing to accept that that's not a universally held opinion, but it's the one that we have, um, and we think there's some good evidence for it. Basically, the part we've just outlined, and we'll make that case again uh, in two weeks or so. Yeah. And, in, and to sort of tie it back to this notion of, of making place, um, Cal Point's kind of an interesting thing to think about. So uh, the location of the site is actually sort of along the present day lakeshore. Um, and the time that this site 
would have been occupied was essentially sort of at the end of what had been a fairly dramatic um, uh, environmental change, process of environmental change in that particular region of the lower Velostok. And so we don't actually see stabilization in sort of the river uh, as we know it today, um, really until about the time just before uh, or just after Cow Point would have been, sometime right around when Cow Point would have been occupied or shortly thereafter. Um, the present day shorelines of the Velostok would have been established. Um, you had sort of an increasingly um, open environment there, like a, the 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 water is sort of getting lower and lower in that region to stabilize to about where it settled out. And it is interesting to think about how we have a really um, strong, um, uh, basically from the time Cow Point is occupied onwards, we have a very detectable um, and archaeologically rich record in that region in around the Grand Lake Meadows from sort of that time onwards. And you think about sort of settling into a place and, and making place in a certain region. Um, and certainly an overt act like having this sort of cemetery of, of a, this regionalized movement. Um, you can imagine that probably um, this place would have been known even by people who, not, who were not related to those who were buried there. And that's a, a really um, overt um, expression of, of a connection to a place and, and a way to know that place too, um, uh, to kind of, uh, sort of exemplify how how these significant acts by you know individuals and by small groups can actually perpetuate this notion of a connection um, of, of, of a particular places in the landscape and i think that's a, a great transition to um as our courvoisier gets uh, gets a little lower in the bottle here to just um a little bit of foreshadowing about next fortnight or sorry it's probably actually two fortnights from now because we're gonna do our sai special yeah i think so yeah, so so in four weeks, because in two weeks we're gonna have uh, Ken live from Portland, the other Portland, the um, West Coast Portland, the West Coast Portland. Um, it's just why the late Maritime Archaic end, and some of this is that there's, you know, again, this is you know, and, and I'm essentially just almost a, much of this thing to Matt, which I find really convincing. Um, we've got climate change where we've got this sea level rise and there's all sorts of implications when sea levels rise for coastal productivity. Um, it's hard to really, uh, so I was about to say it's hard to really model. It's probably actually pretty easy to model, but it's pretty hard for archeologists to describe <laughs> yeah. what exactly happens when sea level rises. The, I, <laughs> I feel like I, I was at this conference once and archeologists explaining, he's, he's just really riffing on how difficult things are to model. And then he got into, you know, and they're tides, they're totally unpredictable. And uh, one of the geologists in the said, no, tides are totally predictable. He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, right. Humans right. are unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> it's the humans that are a problem. Um, but uh, temperatures were also getting uh, colder. They were pretty warm at the start of the late maritime archaic. That also may have some implications for swordfish, how swordfish act when water temperatures change. Um, the tree line was further north. There was less sea ice, more precipitation. Um, and then actually... Right at the end of the late Mar Maritime Archaic in New Brunswick, um, we had these white pine hemlock dominated forests that start to shift to being a bit birch dominated by about uh, 3,800 BP or so, uh, calibrated BP. And then also there are at both ends of the Maritime Archaic, this is this is the big foreshadowing part. I know the listener already was probably a climate scientist or very popular in the climate science community. Um, but uh, had some sense of uh, there are some other people, other cultural groups that may be 
doing things. So in the South, this includes the uh, potential arrival of Susquehanna people about 3,800 years ago. And in the North, uh, pre-Dorset, so Inuit people uh, around 4,100 years ago. Potentially, So we've got potentially both climate pressures and human pressures going on that are going to result in some of the cultural changes that we're going to talk to you about in like 28 days, which yeah. is deep in the future. <laughs> and, and, and we may not get back to it, but uh, uh, we're talking about pre-Dorset right around this time. But um, we would actually, if we, if we get touch on it at all, we're talking about particular places. The Dorset actually essentially live in the same landscape as uh, port au um, about 3,000 years later. Um, at a place, uh, a site that we call Phillips Garden. That's right. And so the listener would check out uh, MAP Renouf, I think. Yep. For uh, that. Her and Trevor, uh, Bell? Trevor Bell, is it? Yeah, I think it's yeah. Bell, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and Bell also done good climate work on that site, I think. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. how they figured out like where the other, where the houses were. They did some interesting sea level yeah. change uh, modeling, basically were shoreline modeling and figured out like, well, there's a cemetery here. There's got to be houses somewhere. Yeah, they. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you were at the. Yeah, you. You were definitely at the uh, Fair Honor of David Sanger at CAA maybe ten years ago, something like that. Yeah. And uh, Bell was giving. I think. I think that paper, but had the the book they just published that in, and and uh, and he got to the the thing in the in the the paper, and he's reading it, and he says, it says, handbook to David. Hands <laughs> <laughs> David Sanger the book they published. It. <laughs> the uh the uh, is this is a fun business is it not ken it is it is the uh there's a lot worse ways to make a living there certainly are yeah so as our covassier dwindles shall we turn to hit pieces i think i think we're on to uh i think we're on to our hit piece tonight it's a hit piece that's right yeah piece tonight is uh the journalistic enterprise ProPublica, which uh is, is a kind of wide-ranging um in i think investigative journalism thinks they do stuff on medicine they do stuff on um nonprofits. they do all sorts of things uh that are investigative but the one that we're going to tell you about is that they've just uh in this new year launched one about repatriation folks in the United States. And we think this is a kind of an appropriate one to bring up this week because so Ken and I are both uncomfortable talking about um, burials, talking about sites that have human remains of indigenous people. And that's because we are fully aware that um, our discipline has been implicit in, you know, just really sort of no way to sugarcoat it, horrific, ways of approaching the treatment of indigenous people and particularly of indigenous human remains. And so the ProPublica repatriation project uh, reporting program, which we will link in the show notes, is focusing in on a series of journalistic stories about repatriation in the United States. The listener may have encountered one which has received some airplay uh, in the United States and I think in Canada as well about UC Berkeley, 
It has an enormous number of human remains, indigenous human remains in their teaching collections. Close to 10,000 people. It was, yeah. Close to 10,000 ancestors is my understanding. Um, in, uh, and and the, to the story, if the listener Googles uh, like UC Berkeley, Tim White teaching collection, this will come up, that story. Or you can go to the ProPublica website, which we'll link. Um, deals with this this problem that institutions have, which is that they have human remains. And many American institutions are pretty old, right? And so they've accumulated from before NAGPRA, which we... I Have we discussed NAGPRA, Ken? Unless we covered it cursorily in the in the first week, but uh, uh, the Native American graves and repatriation, um, what's the protection and protection repatriation act? Yeah, yeah, protection and repatriation act. Yeah, um, and uh, we talked about it briefly, but this was passed in 1990 after um, you know many years of court battles that, um, which was basically a federal. It's mandate. a rare case where you see George Bush with a pen. And you don't feel nervous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was um, basically a federal mandate, and it was tied to uh, the National Historic Preservation Act in a way, but essentially it was a, a, a mandate um, from any federally funded institution or an institution that receives federal funding. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, so was required, public monies, yeah. was basically required by law to repatriate um, human remains and um, uh, burial goods. Uh, there's a term for um there's a nagpra term for burial funerary goods. objects funerary objects yeah. um but it had to be to um the closest descendant community who could trace lineal descent with the remains that were in collections which has created all sorts of political um and practical issues for descendant communities um because of uh competing territorial claims um the lack of recognition of some tribal entities in the united states um, and, and, and certainly, um, we, we were lucky to have learned about a really important case, uh, from Maine, um, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, the, the Peabody Institute. Um, but, uh, it's funny. But yeah. I was actually, I, as soon as you said, I was thinking that just, when we, were, we should get Marla on a podcast to talk about this. Yeah. I think, I yeah, think Marla she could Taylor probably yeah. be quite a bit more evocative about this than, than I can. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, without question, I mean, you know, NAGPRA was passed in, in I think it was 1990. Um, and here we are, you know, 30 some odd years out. Um, and there's still, you know, tens of like well over 10,000 um, uh, ancestral remains stored in on shelves in museums and, and at universities and institutions in the United States. Um, probably caught in some kind of legal battle over who has control over these things yeah it's it's a little unclear from the uh but but there are so i think my understanding is one of the conflicts is just determining the the way in which this is determined it can be a variety of things and and where whether it's a kind of when we think of descent we have to think of genetic kind of understanding of descent where you can have a more cultural understanding of descent which is under nagpra should count yeah um but really, what I, as I'm as I'm talking here, I'm realizing we should just get Marla Taylor at the Robert S. Peabody on for a podcast, probably. Yeah, and probably have her actually about explain it. this to you. And and I think it'd be important too to maybe have somebody um, put this in a Canadian context as well, um, because Absolutely. we don't have because we don't have federal legislation. Um, we also don't have federal repatriation legislation, um, and without question, there have been uh, mandates 
uh, to repatriate um, uh, funerary goods and 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 uh, um, and human remains. Um, but I don't know. I guess I don't know how successful um, Canadians have been. I think for the most part, I, I don't know if many institutions would have human remains left at them. Um, but uh, and I know that you know uh, museums have even made a, a very um, concerted effort at repatriating even funerary goods um, uh, over the last few years. Uh, but uh, but maybe we could tap into somebody at like the National Museum, um, uh, uh, the Museum of History, uh, that could maybe give us a, give us an insight on that. Yeah, I think that would be good because I mean it's it's particularly relevant I think for the the kind of discussion we had this week um, where we're trying to think about traditions that are really defined in large part by historic work on mortuary material, right? And so trying to think about how this all connects to how we understand the past, but also um, I think one of the points that you and I have tried to make this week and that we hope the listener takes away from this discussion is that the understanding that we at least have taken from the archaeological record is one of a sort of Wabanaki past, which is well, uh, which is very different than the narrative, I think, that many people might have of Indigenous people in the Northeast, right? Yeah, one that has a a, a fairly um, traceable cultural descendancy and continuity um, as it relates to not just technology and, and practice, but also place and 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 those sorts of connections. Yeah, and to a fairly vast place too, which I think is important. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think it's possible that with with this hit piece, I'm suggesting people check out the ProPublica repatriation page. We've actually done um, a lot of foreshadowing, and we've hopefully solicited uh, various people to come on to talk about this. We hope that they are among our adored listeners, as all of you listeners are too. And uh, Ken, is there anything you'd like to add before we before we wrap this up? Uh, no, as always, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I, we're, we haven't hit the thousand mark, so we don't have that uh, uh, that uh, exclusive thousandth listener prize is still up for grabs. Um, but uh, but we really appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate the the five stars. And if you're listening and you want to follow and and add another five star, that's uh, uh, it's really great. Um, uh, you know, our, our sponsor is thrilled about it. Uh, and uh, at some point, um, you know. Uh, we we may even get a dinner out of this thing so yeah no it's true the um you the listener may not know this but every five star every five star review we get uh we we immediately text each other simultaneously um but because ken and i text each other simultaneously with a three-hour time difference it actually sometimes wakes one of us up and since ken (laughs) has children it can be a little disruptive but that's okay we appreciate every one of them just as much as we appreciate the very first. And actually, in all seriousness, Ken and I are having an awful lot of fun doing this. So um, thanks very much. And uh, we uh, enjoy talking to you every fortnight. Next one will be, uh, we say live, but it'll actually perhaps be even a little delayed because Ken edits these. I write the show notes. Ken does the editing. Um, Ken will be flying back from the SAA. So it may be a little slower next fortnight than it has been uh, traditionally. But we are really looking forward to having a live show where Ken will be um, there in Portland, Oregon. And handing it our swag. So come find me, listener. If if you're attending the Society for American Archaeology annual meeting in Portland, Oregon, uh, track me down uh, because I will have stickers in 
my jacket at all times. Should we should we give them like a should there be a phrase? Should we have a catchphrase? Oh, I don't know. Do we have a slogan? No, we we don't. We, we don't. don't have a slogan. But I mean, but they could just come up and they could say something like, um, uh, what would they say? I don't I know. Feel like we we could make where did, some... where did chicken nuggets originate? Chicken tendies, chicken tenders, right? Chicken yeah, tenders. yeah, yeah. Sorry, this is the, you're thinking about the ten- so actually that was supposed to be in Hakuna Arata. Apparently, I misstated the the flavors of the tendies, but <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you see Ken at the SAS, walk up to him and say chicken tendies, and you're gonna get you're gonna get a sticker. Yeah, you're gonna get a sticker. Yeah, and and we'll know you listened. That's uh, we will, we yeah. will. Um, we're looking at you, St. Mary's University Archaeology Lab, and uh, in Vermont Archaeology. And if, and if you miss the opportunity in Portland, uh, we will be we will have some swag at uh, at the Canadian Archaeological Association meeting in Member Two at the start of May. That's right, and we we love to meet listeners, even though we've never met one yet. <laughs> Outside of our our families and friends, who we keep sending the podcast to. Yes. Uh, and, and who we continue to adore. Yeah, exactly. They, Ken, I feel like we've gotten to this point where it's like it's like that moment where we're leaving a restaurant and we know that our car is parked by someone else's car, but we've done the hugs. Yeah. So now we don't really know what to do. Do we walk around the block? How do we end this? Do we just say that we're looking at a half-finished bottle of Covassier? I think right now the music's playing, actually. Fantastic. Well, Ken, this has been fun as always. Yeah. Have a good evening, listener. You- and you, and you too, Gabe. Sorry, I thought, I thought you were going to wish me a good evening. I was going to say you too, and then I felt weird. But I also wish the listener a good evening. <laughs> Thank you.